Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I will be speaking with Craig Kokio, PharmD, BCPS, an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist in Tyler, Texas. He's currently gearing up for a new PGY2 in emergency medicine pharmacy, which is his second in Texas. He's well known for starting the EMPharmD blog, which is available at empharmd.blogspot.com, which has grown to nine contributors and is approaching 1 million views. Before we get started, Dr. Kokio, do you have any disclosures to share? Uh, no, I don't have any disclosures. So why don't we go ahead and get into it. Today we're, as I mentioned, talking about ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. I know that this is a topic that is pretty close to, to your heart because I'm sure you see plenty of ACE inhibitors in the emergency department environment and probably your fair share of angioedema associated with those ACE inhibitors. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, We do see quite a bit of it in the ER. We do get, I guess, an observational bias towards it where we think there's a little bit higher incidence than there really truly is, but almost not every patient, but a vast majority of patients that come into my emergency department have at least been on an ACE inhibitor at some point in their life. Yeah, and you know, to put some numbers to it, which I think is kind of relevant, there's more than 40 million Americans that are using ACE inhibitors, and that that number is probably increasing largely due to the new JNC8 guidelines that don't recommend a specific drug class like a thiazide as a first-line therapy. And I'm sure everyone has the ACE inhibitor that they see most commonly is lisinopril, but we have enalapril, benazapril, ramipril, plenty of other ACE inhibitors out there on the market. So this is a very common drug class, but actually a fairly rare adverse effect in angioedema. So Dr. Kokio, would you kind of explain what is angioedema and what are some of the rates or risks of angioedema with this drug class? Sure. So angioedema obviously is a uh, a swelling of face, lips, or tongue. It can actually happen anywhere in the body. The folks that we have that have the hereditary angioedema, one of the more common places they suffer this angioedema is actually in the abdomen. But for the purposes of what we're really and truly concerned with, it's the edema that occurs around the face, lips, and tongue, really the upper airway, and also laryngeal edema. So when we're talking about ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, the the risk of airway compromise of all the patients that have angioedema is only about 4%. So taking that 40 million Americans that use ACE inhibitors and the generally accepted incidence rate of angioedema, which is about 0.7%, it's not 4% of that total for, for 40 million. It's 4% of that 0.7, so roughly 300,000 Americans. So the incidence is remarkably small uh, when we're talking about the patients that actually truly have airway compromise. But we do see a large spectrum of folks that come into the hospital and in the emergency department in ranging severities of angioedema. Obviously, we want to investigate this further and make sure they don't have any airway compromise throughout their course of the angioedema. So often these patients do get admitted to the hospital, oftentimes to an ICU or a kind of elevated level of observation unit, not necessarily just a medical floor. And they usually stay in the hospital for 4.8 or roughly five days on average. Well, it seems like, you know, this is a pretty severe complication, given that it could potentially cause airway compromise, given that they're going to stay in the hospital for a number of days. When many people on on the healthcare side think of angioedema, I think EpiPen is the first thing that comes to mind. I would guess then that the pathophysiology of, let's say, a bee sting is pretty different than the pathophysiology of an ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. So, of course, this is not 
a type one allergy where we're having mast cell degranulation. Um, it really has nothing to do with that pathway at all. What's going on, of course, as many of us know, is that ACE inhibitors are actually inhibiting the breakdown of bradykinin. That increased level of bradykinin as a result of that has more interaction with the bradykinin 2 or B2 receptor, which causes vascular endothelial dysfunction, um, which is kind of a buzzword, uh, I guess, to me when I, that I've been seeing throughout the literature and throughout podcasts and, and blogs where we're becoming more and more, I guess, familiar with this uh, dysfunction in this organ in a number of other diseases such as sepsis. But when we're talking with angioedema and ACE inhibitors, obviously this leads to fluid movement from intravascular spaces to extravascular spaces. And of course, that's not where it should be. So histamine doesn't really have a role in this. And uh, mast cell degranulation, of course, doesn't have a role in this. So when we're approaching a patient that comes in the emergency department with inhibitor angioedema, it's, it's not, obviously, it's not written on their forehead. We don't know exactly that's what's happened. So we do try to treat them broadly. And if we do have an excellent story, an excellent case where we can try to hammer home things in their history, oftentimes these patients still do get these therapies, but it's something that would be in, our, in the back of our mind when we're reassessing the patient to see if it's not improving their clinical condition. We have to start thinking more down the pathway of bradykinin accumulation in addition to some of these other enzymes that have been identified to be involved in the pathway. So in terms of the chronology then, is ACE inhibitor-induced androedema happening with the first dose of an ACE inhibitor? Does it happen within a month or can it kind of happen at any time, even in these patients on chronic therapy for, let's say, more than a year? All of the above, I suppose. These patients can have uh, angioedema from their first dose. It could be years down the road. It could be from a change in dose. Rarely does it happen from an overdose. It's not really dose-dependent in its reaction. But uh, we again, we can see this at any point in time. Often, and what we're starting to see a little bit more uh, with newer drugs that are coming to the market that are working on different pathways, is that we've identified not just that bradykinin is involved in the pathogenesis of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, but there's a number of other metabolic pathways of bradykinin that are inhibited. For example, neutral endopeptidase, aminopeptidase P, or dipeptidyl peptidase 4. So if I'm sure as everyone is aware, again, there's a number of drugs that interact with those proteins, those enzymes. For example, the citagliptin, saxagliptin, so the DPP4 inhibitors. And in, in addition, we have a new player to the market called uh, neprilysin inhibitor, which is Secubitril. And and another word or another terminology for neutral endopeptidase is neprilysin. So when we, when we start combining these drugs together, we're starting to see increases in the incidence of angioedema, which is kind of playing into our understanding and furthering our understanding of the pathophysiology of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema in that it's not all bradykinin. There are other elements going on here. And trying to design treatments and clinical pathways to counteract those or prevent those are of uh, particular interest. So then in thinking about some of the other drugs that may play a role in this, angiotensin receptor blockers, let's say like losartan, clearly they have a different mechanism, but they kind of play within the same battlefield, if you will, of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Are we seeing that the ARBs play a similar role like the ACEs in terms of angioedema, or is the risk lower, higher? What, what, what do we know about the ARBs with respect to angioedema? 
So the risk of angioedema from uh, these drugs, the ARBs, are, is certainly lower than that of ACE inhibitors. Of course, we're not having an inhibition of angiotensin-converting enzymes, so there's no accumulation in bradykinin. However, we do have those other three or four um, and potentially more unidentified uh, metabolic pathways that can still be at play. So someone might be on acetagliptin or recently started Entresto, which is the brand name for Secubitril and Valsartan, which do play on this pathway. So it, when we're trying to gather a history, if uh, the clinician or someone writing a case report isn't aware that other drugs are playing on this pathway, that might be left out of the history and not considered in the diagnosis. So again, we say that ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema occurs at a rate about 0.7%. Um, you could ballpark ARBs are about half that. But when we start to add in other drugs, so for example, you combine uh, losartan or valsartan, an angiotensin receptor blocker with a DPP-4 inhibitor, the incidence that we see in the literature of angioedema actually goes back up to the level of an ACE inhibitor. But again, we don't fully exactly know why that is since ARBs aren't fully explaining our understanding of the mechanism. That's actually really interesting because I think that it really adds a level of complexity to the question of someone who had angioedema on an ACE inhibitor in the past, are they able to tolerate an ARB for, let's say, systolic heart failure? It's really not a straightforward answer in that case. And it never was, but I think it really adds to another layer of complexity given that it could actually depend on some of the concurrent medications. Certainly. I mean, there's no doubt that these drugs, including Secubitril, do do a tremendous benefit to many, many patients and trying to restrict their use as a result of an exceedingly rare adverse event. It should be taken cautiously. It's certainly not something we want to jump at and start restricting the use of these drugs, but it is something to be aware of and to educate patients. So when we're talking about the true incidence and the true harm, I, I would argue certainly the benefits largely outweigh the risk, but given a patient that has had a uh, angioedema from an ACE inhibitor, restarting them on an angiotensin receptor blocker obviously comes with uh, an increased risk just either from atopy, if it's uh, an unidentified allergy, or truly a mechanism that we don't understand going on with the ACE inhibitor. So again, it's something that you do have to take on a case-by-case -case basis, but I agree. It's something that is is a very complex problem that we've tried to break down very simply and maybe a little bit uh, we've oversimplified it a little bit great so as you mentioned because at time zero when a patient presents with angioedema into the emergency department sometimes it's not clearly written and tattooed on their chest i have an ace inhibitor induced angioedema many of these patients will receive some of the therapies that you said earlier are commonly given but are probably not efficacious for this particular type of angioedema. If they aren't responsive, what are some of the tools that we have? As I understand it, some of these tools are fairly new uh, to treat specifically ACE-induced angioedema. So a lot of these drugs are coming to us from other indications, so an indication creep in some of these orphan drugs. But there's a few different strategies that you can broadly look at. So if the traditional therapies aren't working, you can start trying to identify ways to prevent bradykinin production. We have drugs in the class of C1-esterase inhibitors that can do that, fresh frozen plasma or FFP and encalentide. We can enhance bradykinin breakdown, or alternatively, we can block bradykinin activity at the receptor level with a, a drug called Icatabant. 
But the overall goal, of course, is with these drugs is to prevent airway compromise. So oftentimes, if a provider, a resident, a physician, anybody, or even a nurse, anyone that comes to me in the emergency department and says, we've got an ACE inhibitor case uh, that's got some angioedema, we want to use Micalentide, for example, because they found that on up to date on the uh, treatment algorithm. Oftentimes, again, in, in many situations as pharmacists, we want to try to identify, you know, exactly what we're treating and oftentimes trying to clarify what the goal of therapy is. So when we're in that clinical situation, of course, the goal is to prevent this patient's airway from being compromised and prevent any airway intervention. So in essence, preventing intubation or even the need for a surgical airway. And with this obviously comes reduced IC length of stay, reduced infections, and so on and so forth. So trying to figure out where these drugs fit into play in clinical practice, of course, that's the question that we're asking in our mind when we're going over the literature. Where do these drugs fit? And then what are they doing to prevent the incidence of airway compromise leading to intubation? So before we kind of get to some of the data, you mentioned kind of briefly that these are frequently used off-label where they have other indications, uh, some of these newer medications. Would you mind just briefly mentioning, you know, what is a typical on-label indication for some of these agents where we're choosing to use it off-label for ACE-induced angioedema? Certainly. So for example, the C1 inhibitors, we have two on the market, at least in the United States, Sinrise and Bariner. So these drugs are indicated for either prevention or abortion of an attack of hereditary angioedema. So these drugs work on an identified pathway in the uh, calochiron pathway and the complement pathway to stop the pathophysiology going on with that disease state. Obviously, with investigators and, and our understanding of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema and the shared common pathways of these systems, it was theorized that these drugs might have a role in ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, and therefore, again, we had a number of case reports, which led to some small population size studies where we looked at that. Um, some of these other drugs, again, are being investigated for hereditary angioedema, other types of angioedema related to other complement pathways or bradykinin hyperactivity, and very few are actually being developed specifically for this disease state, since, again, it's exceedingly rare the drugs would have to be overwhelmingly expensive to recoup any kind of R&D costs that they might incur. So again, and, and then our traditional pathways aren't so terrible. Got it. It seems like given that it's fairly rare, the drug companies aren't approaching this with the intent of getting FDA approval specifically for ACE-induced angioedema. It seems like we're going to have to deal with maybe a lower quality of evidence compared to some of the other therapies that we're more used to in different disease states. And Absolutely. This is certainly not male pattern baldness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then, you know, as you mentioned, the main things that we're thinking about in terms of the efficacy of our drug therapy to reverse ACE-induced angioedema is uh, prevention of intubation and hopefully reducing length of stay. So of the therapies that you mentioned earlier, what are some of the actual data points that we have indicating efficacy and or safety for these therapies? So, of course, when we talk about uh, the literature and evidence involving such a rare disease state, you have to consider the publication bias that's going on. So, of course, even as a author myself, when you're looking to write up a case or write up a case series that you've observed, you're certainly not thinking about all the times a drug therapy didn't work. 
Uh, oftentimes we think of the things that do work and work miraculously, and then we want to share that with our colleagues through peer-reviewed publication. And that's what we're seeing a lot of times with the initial use of these drugs, like the C1 esterase inhibitors and calentide and acatabant, where we're seeing a big publication bias showing a lot of positive cases and not necessarily encompassing all the times it didn't necessarily work, um, which is equally important. When we're talking about therapies like FFP, there's almost no data out there to look at it as a therapy for this. However, we tend to use it uh, quite often and look at it as the gold standard, which it, re- or I guess the traditional therapy, which it really isn't. Um, so when we're thinking about FFP, of course, it contains angiotensin converting enzymes. So we want to use it to help break down the accumulation of bradykinin that's going on as well as other enzymes, including the ones I mentioned. So AAP and neutral endopeptidase. It also contains a number of other helpful plasma proteins. It's certainly cheaper than a lot of the new drugs out there, and it's very readily available. However, one thing we do have to be aware of is that it actually contains calocrine and bradykinin, which can potentially worsen angioedema. Of course, the infusion reactions, trolley and taco, that we can have with these drugs. And every time we think about it as an agent to use to reverse something like warfarin or any of the new anticoagulants. Obviously, a lot of these patients on these medications have some degree of cardiovascular disease, heart failure, diabetes. So handling such a large volume of plasma may not be great for these patients. So we're looking at alternatives. Of course, these new drugs start to come in. But again, importantly, there's no randomized clinical trial supporting the use of FFP for angioedema related to ACE inhibitors. So it's something that we always have to keep in mind. So that's actually kind of interesting. You point out that it has what we want in it, in FFP, and that it has ACE, for example, and the other kind of enzymes that we're blocking with our ACE inhibitor. But at the same time, it has some of the other things like bradykinin that may not be beneficial. So I wouldn't even say that from a mechanistic standpoint, that this is a slam dunk, that it makes total sense to use it. And in light of not having a lot of good quality data, it may give us some pause in terms of, you know, really how effective is it? No, absolutely. Um, So obviously with that, and that being the only treatment for a long time, uh, we started to look at some other drugs that might be used for something else that might play a role in this. So for example, calentide, uh, which is a newer drug, it's very, very expensive. It's a recombinant inhibitor of calocrine. The data we have out there isn't great. Um, there's a few studies that are mainly phase two. One of the phase two trials was actually stopped early due to futility. Um, there was no efficacy seen compared to placebo. And then a second phase two study showed a 10% increase in the ability to discharge patients earlier from the emergency department, which did not meet the predetermined expected reduction of 50%. So when we're talking about these drugs, we do see a lot of common themes in the investigations. So oftentimes the primary outcome is some composite that they label as discharge criteria. So it's depending on what study you're looking at, it can vary from absolute resolution of edema with no other signs or symptoms. It could be um, 50% reduction. It could be anything. And the time frame vary wildly as well. So um, in these studies, again, we were talking about hours in terms of when they were able to be discharged from the emergency department. And as we'll discuss later on or in other literature, what we're seeing is that the the time frame is, again, stretched out from hours to days and, and beyond. So uh, another drug that we are, are seeing being used for this as well is Icabinet, which is a uh, brand name is Fearzier. 
So it's a small peptide that blocks bradykinin at the receptor level. So we're preventing its activity. And one of the things that makes the most sense about this drug is that we're not trying to fight the ACE inhibitor in breaking down bradykinin. We're not trying to prevent any more production of bradykinin. We're just stopping it at the level of uh, the receptor where we think it's having its, its activity. So really from a mechanistic standpoint, this would be kind of analogous to an antihistamine where we're not preventing the release of histamine from a mast cell, but we are blocking the histamine that's been produced from actually binding and causing, you know, whatever uh, effect it has at the cellular level then. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, logically in thinking about it in terms of our current understanding of the pathophysiology of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, in my opinion, it's the drug that makes the most sense. Um, and then, therefore, it should be the drug that has the best evidence to, to support that. Unfortunately, it doesn't, which starts to pull into question, you know, is this is our current understanding of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema um, all there is to say about it, or is there a number of other things that we're not considering? So, so Academy has uh, one published and then one unpublished excellent set of data that we can look at for this use. So the first study was a randomized a controlled trial of Icatabant versus antihistamine um, plus prednisolone for the management of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. Afterwards, the investigators allowed an open-label uh, Icatabant plus prednisolone use if there was no uh, symptom improvement at six hours. So they were looking for efficacy comparing Icatabant to placebo. And uh, some question later on in the study whether truly a better control agent would have been FFP, but I think from our understanding of FFP, it's probably better to be using placebo in this scenario. In this study, the primary endpoint was a complete resolution of edema. The study was very small. It only had 27 patients. However, it did meet power, and Icatabant did reduce the duration of edema compared to standard therapy. So the duration of edema with Icatabant was roughly eight hours compared to 27 hours uh, with standard therapy alone. And that did reach statistical significance with a p-value of 0.002. Three patients in the standard therapy arm did receive Icatabant rescue, um, and one of them required a surgical airway. So that's actually interesting. You're saying that between FFP and acalantide, really this is the first one to show even some measure of efficacy. But like we said earlier, you know, some of the endpoints that we're really curious about are you know, duration of stay in the ER, duration of stay in the hospital. And really, for me, the big one is the need for intubation or surgical airway. Uh, so it is interesting that we're seeing some glimmer of hope, if you will, for uh, an actual treatment option for the disease state then. Oh, absolutely. And of course, this study was very promising. However, uh, it was small. And again, it didn't really answer the question that we were curious about. So that leads to the second study involving Icatavant. So it's currently not published in a peer-reviewed journal. However, the results are available at clinicaltrials.gov. So you can search the drug name Icatavant, or you could try to look through it in some other mechanism online. But again, that's a pretty good place to start. What we know about the study is that it is, or it was, a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial of Icatavant for ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. Uh, they enrolled more patients, so they enrolled uh, 121 in their intent-to-treat population, and they were looking at, again, the composite uh, endpoint of time-to-meet-discharge criteria. What they found was that it took about four days in each group to reach their defined clinical criteria of meeting discharge criteria, um, and there was no statistical difference between Icatabant and placebo. 
what was more interesting was that the discharge criteria that we saw in other studies, which was defined in hours, shifted to days in this study. So it was clearly different. Um, we're going to have to wait for the, uh, the clinical trial to be published to really investigate this further. However, it's something interesting to consider that we've gone from hours to days. In addition, there was important secondary outcomes. Of course, the study was empowered for it, but it is pointing towards whether or not this drug is truly effective. The one we're interested in, again, is airway intervention, how many patients required intubation. There is one in the Icataban group and zero in the placebo arm. And then how many got admitted to an ICU? So 22 out of the 60 patients who received Icadabant were admitted to an ICU, whereas 22 out of 58 in the placebo arm were admitted to an ICU. So it's not looking great for Icadabant in this clinical study uh, of patients who have ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. Again, it's very expensive. It's not widely available, and we're not seeing the outcomes we're hoping to see from this drug. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting about that is that if someone was to do kind of a literature evaluation they are unlikely to find an unpublished result set on clinicaltrials.gov. And that's, you know, arguably one of the most important trials to answer the question that we're trying to answer, especially with Icatabant. So it's just interesting that um, we don't have the results yet. And clearly, hopefully we'll, we'll see the results to be able to interpret the data uh, a little bit more closely. But it's actually a really big deal to have one of the largest trials here show no benefit, um, especially given that the previous trial was a positive trial, but a fairly small trial. Again, one starts to think about publication bias and how much that plays into the publication of these results compared to others. And of course, we want everything to be published that's investigated in humans. However, that doesn't always hold true. And again, I do have to uh, give credit to the internet, I guess, and social media for helping point out this study. Because again, you're right, doing a typical PubMed search, even Google Scholar is not going to turn up these results, but kind of leaning on the community of ER and critical care physicians and pharmacists out there on Twitter and with their own podcasts and blogs, that's where we get this information that, you know, usually would have been swept under the rug. And specifically, speaking for myself, using this information when you're called to the pharmacy and therapeutics committee or a critical care committee to talk about whether or not we should be using these drugs, having this uh, data and a complete history and a complete um, idea of what's going on with the, these medications is certainly useful and can certainly save um, the hospital from adding a drug that may not necessarily be what we think it is to formulary. Yeah, and you know, just to kind of put some numbers to it, I know that, you know, Icatabant and Calentide are quite expensive. Can you give like a rough ballpark estimate of a typical course of therapy, given that, you know, there's going to be a lot of variation depending on where you're practicing and your buyer and things like that? Certainly. So from a standpoint of uh, general dollars, these are uh, tens of thousands of dollars per therapy. So um, just looking at um, our rough pricing data that we can get from our buyer, it's about $22,000 for an Icatabant course. And in Calentide is a little bit cheaper. It's about $15,000. Um, when you're talking about the C1 inhibitors, depending on what dose range you're using, um, they're actually the most expensive, oddly, about $32,000, $33,000 per course. And then FFP, of course, we know is relatively inexpensive compared to these. And it's hard to pin an exact number on FFP, but it's certainly not tens of thousands of dollars per course. Right. Um, so obviously, 
we don't want to just think about the acquisition cost of drugs. It's also, you know, do these drugs save intubations? Do they save ICU days? And of course, if they did, they would potentially certainly be worth the investment of this drug for the patient. However, what we're seeing in the literature is that um, they're not performing as well as they should, especially for the price tag um, that we have to consider. Yeah. And, I, you know, honestly, I think that as a critical care or emergency medicine community, to some degree, you know, there's this idea of like a salvage therapy for a patient. But at the same point, I think as a community, we should almost demand that we have somewhat better data showing patient relevant outcomes to really justify these pretty extravagant costs, given that these drugs aren't even approved specifically for ACE-induced angioedema, but we're using them off-label for the indication where clearly like there's a discrepancy of the data, there's just not good data to really support their use. Absolutely. And and when we think about it in, in real world practice, these drugs aren't being used at the same point in time as they are in the clinical studies. There's a lot of similarities we can draw um, in ICU and critical care and emergency medicine and toxicology, for that matter, between other antidotes and other therapies. So, for example, um, using the fat emulsion for acute overdoses of certain drugs, um, rarely do we think of it so far in advance of therapy. We usually think of it as a last-ditch effort. Same thing with fibrinolysis or TPA during a cardiac arrest for PE. It's usually, you know, the thing that goes around the room after you know, eight rounds of epi, and does anyone have anything else to contribute? Uh, why don't we throw $10,000 at this patient and see if that helps? Right. So another situation that tends to come up rather routinely is that you have a patient that's already intubated as a result of an ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. They've been in the ICU for three days, four days, and the swelling, the edema has not even hinted at resolving at this point, do we give any of these new drugs? And that's a situation I find myself in more commonly. And it becomes a long discussion about the risks and benefits and a general uncertainty about what's going on with the patient. Um, and truly, do we want to throw this $30,000 treatment at this patient where we have a handful of case reports suggesting it might benefit, but it might have benefited them four days ago, not at this point. Right. Um, so there's a lot that we don't know about these drugs, and that's the biggest biggest point of confusion for me is that um, there's so much we don't know about them, yet we're using them in in various ways that even go beyond the the, the poorly designed and low robustness of the studies that do exist in the case reports. Right. Well, you know, Craig, in the interest of time, I just wanted to kind of wrap things up and, sure. um, you know, for the listeners kind of getting the nuts and bolts of everything and putting everything together, when you see a patient who presents with a lisinopril-induced uh, angioedema, clearly you don't know 100% for sure, but we'll say within the first 10 hours of that patient presenting, at least in your shop, what are some of the therapies that will be given to that patient um, and what considerations would you have to reach for some of these more expensive therapies, if at all, for a given patient? Yeah, so like you mentioned, again, these patients get a, a general workup that we would 
for any other patient in the emergency department. So we start with airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and expose the patient to see what else is going on, um, and then fully work them up. Of course, in the back of the mind, if we get a good history from the patient that they're on an ACE inhibitor, maybe they started one of these newer drugs that might increase their incidence of angioedema, like uh, saxagliptin or citagliptin or uh, Entresto, for example, that's going to heighten my, uh, I guess, awareness for this patient. And of course, just like what's going on with the emergency physicians and the uh, critical care physicians when they're trying to consult other specialists like anesthesia, someone else to help with uh, surgical airway if needed. It's when I'm starting to think about if I need to start contacting the ICU pharmacist or someone else that's been in this situation, particularly if I've never been in this situation before and try to get some help, some backup for what I'm thinking. If we do start to go down the road that none of the typical therapies are working, intubation starts to become more and more likely. Um, again, that's when I'm trying to activate those resources and get everyone at the bedside that I need. If I need another technician or a resident to help run drugs, um, I'll get that. And again, be prepared for anything at that point. If before then we get to, or we're circulating the drain with intubation and these drugs start to come up, so I catavant and, and calentide and baronard are thrown around, I'll try to talk to who's ever you know, discussing that, try to highlight some of the key points in the literature and that, again, a lot of the literature that we do have is overly biased to the positive. The better data that we have is suggesting that there's at least no benefit over placebo. It certainly won't necessarily harm the patient, particularly since we're all here ready to intubate them. Um, but again, don't put all your money in one basket and this therapy probably won't work. Is that something we want to invest with uh, with this patient and their hospital stay, uh, given what we know about the therapy? So hopefully by that point, by 10 hours, I know what's going on. We're all on the same page. The whole treatment team understands um, where everyone else is coming from. We have a good treatment plan, and then everyone's on the same page and going forward together. So uh, to kind of wrap it up then, are you typically not giving some of these newer, more expensive therapies in, in favor of a more, let's say, conservative approach? Yeah, so uh, these therapies, again, based on what we know about angioedema with ACE inhibitors and based on what we know about these drugs, it's hard to say there's a clear place in therapy for these drugs. So instead of trying to divert attention away to see if they're really going to work, try to prepare for the pending airway issue that we have coming up. So I don't try to hold a lot of water with these drugs. Even if we do end up giving them, um, I'll certainly help the physicians uh, or whoever is entering the order into our CPOE to do that appropriately, have coordinate with our IV room and technicians to make sure it's to the bedside in a very swift manner. But again, understanding that the goal with this therapy to prevent this intubation, there's almost no evidence to say that it actually does that. So I'm not really stopping. I'm trying to progress and go forward with the thought that this might be a complicated airway. Um, we might have to use some interesting techniques to secure an airway and certainly something that everyone has to get, consider, even for myself working at an academic medical center and now a community uh, non-teaching hospital. It doesn't matter. The, the room is going to be packed. You're going to have to fight for elbow space. So trying to think ahead and plan out exactly what you're going to need to do in that situation is going to certainly reduce the stress level certainly focus you and allow yourself to 
prevent any potential errors that are happening and try to make sure, again, no errors from a medication standpoint end up happening to this patient to worsen the situation. Right. Well, I think that's a great, great uh, thing to think about. And clearly, you know, I think the medical community is waiting for a lot more data to come out to help guide what direction we want to go with some of these more uh, expensive but newer therapies. Uh, so with that in mind, you know, we've gone through um, a lot of references to a lot of different articles that are out there in the primary literature and even unpublished. For the listeners who want to delve deeper into this, what is a resource that they can go to to kind of see some of these resources for themselves to help make a more informed decision? So in, like I mentioned before, the social media community with emergency medicine and critical care uh, talks about this routinely. So you can go to my blog, which is emfarmd.blogspot.com, or you can go to Google Foam dot com, which is a, a, a search engine that will be able to search all of the podcasts and blogs. As, so you can look at MCRIT or POMCRIT, um, Life in the Fast Lane, Alien, that has resources to help guide your search of the gray literature, even, I guess, the fuchsia literature that you can call that, um, and try to identify different perspectives, different opinions, and look for those nuanced references that you may have overlooked. Certainly, I've used that myself to try to broaden my perspective um, and try to understand this as much as possible so I can bring that to the bedside. Yeah, you know, I think given the lack of data that we have about it, expert opinion is really, you know, what we're currently using. And I think one of the best ways to uh, kind of get the temperature of that expert opinion is through the FOMED community. So I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, well, Craig, I wanted to thank you for your expertise today and for the audience for joining us. Uh, this does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have a topic or specific question you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet us over at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. And for the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois. With a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois. 
with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condo Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.